Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? How's everyone doing? Uh, this is T, Trevor. You can find me on Twitter. Personal account is Ricky Rawls, but group Twitter account for the podcast is Champagne Sharks. Go to patreon.com forward slash Champagne Sharks, become a patron. You get access to all the premium as well as the free episodes. You get access to the voice and Discord chat server, which allows you to not only know which guests are coming on, but also to pose questions to them beforehand that you want us to ask them. So that's always a great thing. So you would have had a chance to pose questions for today's guests. And finally, go to the YouTube account, youtube.com forward slash champagne sharks. That's where we live stream and talk about topical things that get kind of dated within a week or two. So we don't do those on the podcast. Things that happen at the same day, we go on live stream and you can interact with us there and we talk about more topical stuff. So I think that's all the housekeeping and we have with us as the co-host, Ken. Hey, what's up guys? It's Kenny. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Lazarus lives X three and, uh, yeah. And we have our guest today, uh, Dr. Thomas Foster, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself, telling people where to find you and plugging anything you want to plug. I'm um, sure I'm uh, happy to be here and thanks for having me on. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at Thomas A. Foster, and um, you could also find more information about me at Howard University's uh, webpage. Uh, for my faculty profile. Great, great. And um, I'm just appreciative that you have such clear audio because a lot of times, I don't know why, academics tend to call in with some crazy, janky audio. I'm very <laughs> I'm very happy you sound crystal clear. That's, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, and you're, I discovered you from a paper that you wrote that I thought was great. I read it years ago, uh, The Sexual Abuse of Black Men Under American Slavery. And that was a topic that doesn't get discussed a lot. And you expanded that into a whole book, uh, mm. Rethinking Rufus. And I kind of wanted you to talk about both what brought you to the paper and um, what the differences between the, if any, between the paper and the book, and actually what your specialty is outside of this. Because I know you have a broader specialty outside of this, but you know, how your broader specialty brought you to uh, this specific topic. Mm -hmm. So uh, my background and training is in gender and sexuality in early America, primarily colonial America, but it's uh, moved into the 19th century now. So uh, my previous work is largely focused on gender, especially men and manhood and masculinity, um, and um, often sort of sexual components or how sex is part of um, masculinity. So um, certainly the for my first book, the earliest work on masculinity in colonial America focused on um, career or calling. Um, um, and then the political arenas. And um, if it was domestic, it was much more about being a patriarch and head of household. Um, and the work on women had already talked about sex and sexuality as a component of, of femininity and of gender for women. So the contribution that I was trying to make there was to talk about how sex and sexuality mattered for men, uh, even going back to colonial days. And there was all kinds of uh, different ways in which that was spelled out in that book. Um, the article that you mentioned, uh, you're right, that came first. Um, so it's sort of the core for the book. I didn't know there was going to be a book when I wrote that article. I had been teaching the history of sexuality in early America at DePaul University. And uh, just over the years in teaching that class, we would talk about sexual violence against enslaved women. Uh, but we didn't have readings or documents about enslaved men. And more often than not, students would actually assume it didn't happen. Um, I think, you know, often we do see in popular discussion of slavery a recognition that this happened um, and an awareness of it. But I think maybe in the classroom environment where students may have assumed they were getting a total picture, because we didn't have any readings, I think it maybe encouraged students more than another setting might have to assume that that absence meant it didn't happen, as opposed to just we didn't know. 
So um, I actually, over the years that I was teaching that class, occasionally came across instances that I thought looked like sexual violence against enslaved men, but that were not being talked about um, by the historians that included those cases. So one thing interesting about that article is that I didn't do uh, original archival research for it. I didn't go into any um, uh, special holdings and look through uh, personal papers or original documents. Most of those cases, I would say virtually all of them, came from previously published works by historians, um, typically cases that involved men and women, um, but they would only talk about uh, the woman's experience. And so I just sort of filed those away. And eventually uh, there was a there was a special call for a Journal of the History of Sexuality issue on race. And so I saw that as an opportunity to finally pull these cases together um, and put together an article. And that's what that um, that's what led to that particular article. And I can give you an example of the kind of thing that had been written about, um, but uh, the enslaved man's experiences went unacknowledged. And um, the article begins with the case of a late 18th century free black woman, Elizabeth Amwood in Maryland, who was raped by an enslaved man. And uh, that case was used to talk about the vulnerability of free black women in late 18th century Maryland. Um, but there was um, zero mention made of the enslaved man. And um, what happened in that particular instance is uh, two white men held pistols to his head and forced him um, to assault her. And so um, for me, in looking that, at that case, it was clear that he had also been sexually violated um, and that one of the reasons this wasn't being seen by historians that use this case um, is perhaps, I would speculate, um, the, I was going to say ancient, but we'll just go with uh, U.S. and the early American standards, the very old legal statute, um, and even today, that focuses on penetration. Um, and so the fact that he was doing the penetrating, I think, ended up, um, it, it kept it from registering, I think, as sexual assault for people. And this is something I think that we still have not come to terms with. Um, and activists that are talking about sexual violence against men today are starting to look at these cases where um, men are um, coerced, uh, in some cases forced in others, to penetrate. And so those are cases that don't really register for people traditionally as a sexual assault um, because the victim is doing the penetrating. So that's the case that sort of uh, kicked off that article. Um, one of the points I was trying to make in the article, besides the fact that I had seen instances and showed them in um, different arenas, forced um, reproduction or violations by white women, violations by white men, um, but also just the fact that these cases had already been published. And so in many ways, this was hidden in plain sight. It was right in front of our faces, but we were not acknowledging it. Uh, one reason why I think there's a problem in viewing uh, black men as the victims is I think one problem is what you said, that people have trouble with the idea of um, men being victims of rape in general, but the penetration issue. But I also think on top of that, I think there's this kind of trend in like a lot of academia and at least journalism about academia where they take academic concepts and try to boil it down to like a mainstream audience where there's this kind of tendency to kind of just gender power dynamics and just superimpose them onto black people so there's this kind of idea that oh a black man is still a man so he has power due to his male side the same way a white man has so the same aversion to kind of accepting the idea of white men 
being victims of gender discrimination, people kind of had that same resistance when talking about non-white men, even though the truth of the matter is being a non-white man doesn't give you the same male privileges or the same male male power that mm-hmm. being a white, a white man does. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I would also add, um, I mean, in the colonial period, it's still developing. It certainly is growing as a, a cultural understanding or stereotype um, through slavery, uh, and that is of black men as hypersexual um, yeah. and hypersexualized, and and as predators, and so um, that also I think ends up butting up against um, a recognition or a realization of sexual violence against those men. Yeah, um, you, you know, you know what someone told me that they learned in one of their classes. This is a college student. Uh, she went on social media and was talking about stuff that she learned from her professor, and it was crazy. She was talking about gender and race and the power that comes from both. And she was like, white women had power from being white, but they were subjugated due to being women. But black men were subjugated due to being black and slaves, but had power due to being men. Black women had the racial subjugation and the gender subjugation. And then she said, and this is something that her professor seriously told her, and I could not believe a professor would say this. So she said that the the white woman had the white woman had fem had white privilege over the black male slave, but the black male slave was still a man, so he had male privilege over the white female slave owner, and everyone was telling her like that's insane. That's what are you very talking insane. About? Yeah, he, he's he's a, he's a slave. Like he has no, he, he cannot activate any type of male privilege in the body of a of a black slave over mm-hmm. the white woman. You know, like like I mean, even if you physically, even if you physically assault her, he can't use like some kind of male mm-hmm. patriarchal privilege to get off for for the uh, for the crime. Like, there's nothing, and she just kept kept arguing, and it wasn't the fact that she said it that I thought was crazy, but that. She said her professor uh, t- taught her that. And I thought, uh, I want to get your ideas on that. If you've encountered any types of uh, similar things in academia as far as understanding of. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's sort of, I guess I'm curious, like, what was the class and what was the context they were talking about? Because it's just such a generalization. Did you say they were talking about enslaved men or just black uh, ensla- men? Uh, enslaved, enslaved men. Enslaved men. Okay, I so, can't so, so, get my head around that um, argument yeah, she, in any she, way. She, she was ran off social media before people can get the details because <laughs> okay. it, went, it went that bad for her. But I was fascinated, too. How did yeah. It, I mean, it's uh, if you study early America, you do get a sense of power that white women had in that period that um, does decrease through the 19th century in some ways, especially for elite white women or, or middle class white women. Um, and there's like a much older body of scholarship that talked about white women in the colonial period as um, having a much stronger presence, especially in the 17th century, in the communities. This is before really domesticity takes over. So if you were a student that came up through women's studies and your primary focus was on white women's experiences, um, you would actually even have the opposite of what you just um, shared they were taught in their class, and that you would you would probably learn there was a, a declension narrative for women's power um, if they were taking like the 17th century as a period when white women were much more involved in the community, in the courts, um, etc. Because things hadn't really formalized into like a 19th century domestic model where the only proper place for a middle class white woman is home. Um, I mean, those worlds emerge. I am familiar with encountering in early American class. Um, students that just haven't studied early America and they've primarily focused on the 20th century and they think that um, white women's freedoms um, stem entirely from uh, the 1960s. 
um, or even 70s in terms of like a modern women's movement. And there just isn't a lot of awareness of an earlier history. Um, I'm not even going to entertain how they thought that um, enslaved black men had more power than white women at the time. I can't get my yeah, head around I think, it. I think a lot of the, uh, and you know, this is one thing, I'm a, I'm a student of history myself. Mm. And of all the history I've ever studied, ne- especially African-American, specifically African-American uh, history, never heard that before in my life. But what happens is, and a lot of the listeners of the show know I use this word a lot, <laughs> presentism. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of presentism. And what they're trying to do is use the way that they think today about black men mm-hmm. for black men that existed 200 years ago, 250 years ago, mm-hmm. which then you lose all the context. You mm-hmm. lose all. Well, fuck it. You lose all the truth. OK. Mm-hmm. And and that's a, that's something that I found um, with a lot of people that are so-called students of history. But they're, they're taking on the gender studies and things like that. They're putting the gender part above history. And then they start conflating the two. And it's like you can't even you can't even use the way women think 250 years ago for the way women thought in, two, in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. I mean, hell, yeah, you can't exactly. even use the way women thought in the 1940s for the way women thought in the 1960s. Yep, that's right. So yeah, to use so. 200 years, I mean, that's almost baffling. So a lot of times when I see that kind of stuff, one, I always think that they're lying. I'm like, your professor didn't tell you that. Mm. You know what I mean? This is something that yeah, you, that's, a po- you, that's a possibility, too. Like she might have been yeah. making it up all, to, all together. Yeah, it's, the a, professor it's a mix of it. both. Somehow, I don't think so. I mean, it may be a mix of both, but somehow I don't think she's making it up, but who knows? Yeah, yeah she, she was a freshman. Re- one reason why I think she might not be making it up was that she was a freshman in college. So she had that enthusiasm of, I just learned. You know, when you're in college, the last oh, thing yeah. you ever learned, you're like really pumped up to tell everybody because everything is like fresh and brand new. So she she did just start college in her profile. I, I do remember that. Um, so I can, that's what- I, I can tell you as an instructor, I've given quizzes or even at those final exams where you read what students think you taught them during the semester and occasionally you do get stuff that's just almost the opposite of what you were teaching or it's just a little <laughs> off the wall it's completely disheartening as a teacher um but it's also possible that that's what happened here that the person you know the student misunderstood what was said or took it out of context or who is is combining two or three things they heard in one day yeah. you know it's like who knows so yeah one can hope one could definitely one can definitely uh hope uh something else that i think happens uh the reason i laugh when um when Kenny said uh, presentism is because uh, our, our our fans call him Professor Presentism because he's always talking about presentism. But uh, he's right, too, in that uh, everything he calls presentism really is presentism. But I'll even add something else to the presentism. Not only is it um, projecting the present on the past, but that people misunder- misunderstand the present. So they're not even right about the present. They actually have a mistaken present and then they mis- they put their mistaken idea of the present onto the past so it's like a double fallacy like 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 you don't even have the present right and you, yeah. you're projecting yeah, that yeah it makes it even worse yeah it's yeah, a slippery slope i have a question um <laughs> something that i've been all i've i've been wondering about especially of those times and i could never find that's why i was so fascinated um about the article that you wrote because i'm i'm really fascinated about certain aspects of enslaved africans of that time and their interaction with um white women at that time and i was i could never find too much information about wealthy white women who bought slaves and married them or wealthy white women who bought 
uh, enslaved Africans and use them as some type of um, breeding mechanism, like on a lot of plantations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know of a lot out there. Stephanie Jones Rogers, you know, has this fantastic um, book on white women and their um, very active involvement in enslavement and in, in slavery. Um, so there's a new body of literature that is focusing on white women as um, as uh, powerful and as enslavers, uh, and that's really different from an older body of literature that talked about white women as um, victims of slavery in many ways, um, in that they were uh, trapped in homes with uh, white male enslavers who were abusing enslaved women, um, who were domestically violent at home, because that culture of violence that um, enslavers develop uh, is you can't contain that. So no. I mean, th- they directed at enslaved people, but it becomes the culture. It's a culture of violence that develops. I would argue our culture of sexual violence today, um, a lot of that was forged under slavery. Um, and just that mentality of how um, people are abused and exploited, um, I think, stems from that. And you just can't have um, such a long period of generations of abuse like that without that being part of the culture. Right. But, but I digress. So that was that was sort of the focus was on white women's um, lack of power and victimhood in that in that environment. And so now there's a new generation of scholars. Um, Stephanie Jones Rogers is the um, best book out there on this. Um, but then also I, I have a chapter on white women and in, in enslaved black men uh, to look at the ways in which they uh, wielded power. And there's a number of documents that talk about different ways that white women manipulated enslaved men, um, sometimes explicitly referencing the fact that they could um, mobilize the courts against the men, um, sometimes tipping the men um, and I mean, I think people who aren't really clued into the power dynamic there might say, well, the men are being compensated. And I mean, it's a bizarre argument, but I mean, we we can bump up against this kind of rationalization for these moments. I think that's often just a, a sense of denying it, obviously, or as you said, lying about these things. Um, but my argument is, as enslaved men, they are in no position to uh, refuse uh, advances made by white women, and, and white women know that. Right. So right. it's, and this is not to deny the agency of those men. Uh, so to say that a man is in a position um, and he is uh, that vulnerable does not mean that it, this is still not a. Um, fully fleshed out human being who is negotiating that situation, navigating that situation, trying to think of options that they have. Um, So, and there's, you know, a lot of work that was done on enslaved women as both victims and um, as agents within that environment, you know, trying to make the best life for themselves that's possible, um, resisting when possible and in ways that are acceptable for that particular moment. But it ends up coming down to, you know, a very intense moment between two individuals in a specific context in terms yeah, of negotiating it, that dynamic. Because there's a lot of, uh, like, even even within the uh, Black community, you, you know, you talk to elders and, um, you know, I, even my grandparents, they weren't well-versed on history at all. The only history they knew was with their, their own personal history mm-hmm. and things that happened to them in the South. And they would always correlate to something that happened 150 years ago. So my gran- my grandfather would always talk about um, on plantations. Oh, yeah, you know, you had slave masters that would, you know, have sex with the men, and rape young men. And then he would correlate that. It was a presentism. But he was correlating that to something that he saw today. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was I never could find a lot of information about uh, the homo- homosexuality uh, or um, slave masters who were uh, homosexuals who were raping or or they weren't homosexual, but were raping uh, enslaved men. Mm-hmm. 
even that information was kind of fleeting. I didn't really find a lot of information about that, but I, I could find all kind of, you know, from uh, the, what's the, what's the man's name over in the West Indies the, doing the Derby dose oh, and all that oh, kind of oh, stuff. Oh, 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 Thomas Thistlewood. Um, yeah, yeah, Thomas Thistlewood. You know, even from Thomas Thistlewood, you can find some of the most horrible things, but yeah. I didn't really find a lot of information on that. Right. Yeah, I think Thistlewood's diary mentions two cases of sodomy, um, and uh, they're both, I believe, with valets or close body servants um, for the individuals, um, the white men who assault them or accused of assaulting them. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the chapter that I have on same-sex sexual violence, a large part of that chapter focuses on the vulnerability of uh, enslaved men who served as body servants or manservants or uh, close personal valets to enslavers. Um, and, you know, there's a handful of sort of cryptic references to them being sexually um, suspect. And I think the chapter is, at least that section of the chapter is largely trying to show us uh, a world of this kind of power imbalance in that kind of intimate setting. Um, and, you know, for me, it's it's not a um, it's not too far to assume that there were cases there that these things don't get documented well. I mean, yeah. short of um, an enslaver writing about this in their journal, literally, I mean, because they keep journals often of abuses. Um, enslavers often share abuses they've thought of with other enslavers um, in terms of how, you know, how creative and sick they are, essentially, in terms of abuses. And so we don't see this, though, often being uh, written about and shared. Um, one thing um, that I want to throw out there uh, is that you mentioned they, uh, you could refer to them as homosexual. And I just want to remind us that we don't have that word actually until the late 19th century. It's really a 20th right. century term. And most scholars would argue it's even a 20th century concept. So the way that gets a uh, problem, uh, the way that becomes problematic for a lot of people, gay or otherwise, is that it has, on the one hand, a sense of sort of erasing all that history before that word existed. In other words, well, there were no gay people. So, so there, there's no way they could Therefore, you don't have, exactly, you don't have right. that kind of abuse. You don't have people that are attracted to others and aware of it um, or even operating on it. Um, and I just think that's wrong. And there's plenty of work, uh, mine included, on same-sex sex before the word is invented before homosexual is invented, um, to show that there are people who are at least beginning, uh, you know, these ideas are in place for generations in terms of individuals who are um, either inclined to attraction to people of the same sex or would engage, engage in uh, abuse or exploitation of people who are vulnerable of the same sex. Um, and one thing I definitely don't do is, um, and I think I even throw in an explicit caveat, is I would never want to assume uh, anybody's sexual orientation or identity based on that kind of an action, uh, based on a sexual assault. So I just think they're very different uh, things. Um, I do have I'm, an instance. I'm, I'm, I, mean, I mean, by that, do you mean like, for example, how somebody might not be what would be typically thought of as uh, being part of the homosexual lifestyle, but in jail might uh, might engage in homosexual uh, activity? Do you yeah. mean like that? Okay. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I think that's what people call situational homosexuality, or at least they used to a while ago. And uh, yeah. um, it's some of that, but it's also trying to separate uh, sexual desire from sexual violence. So I don't want to say that there's never desire in in the violence, um, but there's such different things. And I do think... Um, the point is to subjugate the individual. Um, and so for me, it's less about, um, or at least I don't, as an historian, have access to the men reflecting on what it meant for them or their identity. 
And yeah. even if I did, I would not have spent much time in this book talking about that because this is not a book about enslavers. And that I th- think also makes it slightly different in that um, I don't use a lot of their voices. I don't use a lot of their papers. It's primarily um, made up of accounts um, of ensl- formerly enslaved people and enslaved people. I think two reasons why it's probably hard to track in general is that I feel like there wasn't, like you said, there wasn't even the language for it back then. Mm. And uh, I'm sure it was much, much more stigmatized back then. So people probably weren't even talking about uh, intraracial uh, within the same race, uh, homosexual activity, right. uh, if, if you could even call it that. So it's not like people were talking about it even amongst just, just white men. Like, you know, uh, for example, I know there's a president that is very highly speculated to have been gay and, and to have lived with his his male partner, but you know, it was never really kind of explicitly ever said in his in his lifetime. I forget which one which one that that is. Well, like Doctor Foster is saying, is like if 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 it did happen, that those terms didn't exist. So it could yeah. be seen as imposing your will on another person, sexual exploitation, or just all outright sexual abuse. But those terms didn't exist, and and like you were saying, T probably because of the stigma, that probably might not have been something that they shared in their journals with other enslavers. They may not even share it with themselves also. Right. So it's mm, just, this true. is also about presentism. So this is also just about, um, we don't have good language to talk about homosexuality before the word exists. So if we use it as shorthand, it's just, it has to come with all these caveats that we don't want to mobilize everything we think we know about it today. It's exactly the point you were making earlier that, um, you know, what we think we know about homosexuality today is not going to be the same thing about... As 200 years ago. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Same sex, or especially same-sex violence. I think another thing is the whole biological logistics of it in terms of we probably wouldn't even know a lot about uh, female uh, rape of enslaved females except that uh, the biology doesn't lie and a lot mm-hmm. of them are getting pregnant. A lot of them are getting pregnant. So you, yep. you kind of couldn't, you kind of couldn't hide it. So since, since a lot of these light skinned and biracial and octoroon people are popping up, the evidence is there. So mm-hmm. it kind of, that alone kind of destigmatizes the talking about it. You kind of have to talk about it, even if you're characterizing it in uh, in an incorrect way by saying, oh, the Jezebels, they were like inviting it. But whereas with a male-on-male sexual action, uh, there is no pregnancy. It, it probably makes it a lot easier to just sweep it under the carpet, both for uh, the enslaved person and the enslaver, as far as never bringing it up again. If if no one reveals it or witnesses it, what evidence is going to uh, yeah? Did it even pop? happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no biracial child is going to pop up out of it either. So I think that also makes it very hard to uh, document the extent of it. I have to imagine. Yes. It definitely does. Um, And that's especially, well, it's always true, but I mean, it's just harder in the earlier period when there's less discussion about the issue. Um, And so, right, we don't have those examples. We don't have those um, births triggering uh, court cases or uh, community gossip or any of those things. Uh, This is one last question, a topic I'm going to ask. I was going to save it to the end because it's a a listener question, but since we're already on the topic, I'll just uh, insert the question now. Somebody was asking about the uh, concept of bug breaking, uh, Mm -hmm. and that's that's a controversial topic because some people say it's exaggerated and that it's actually in itself uh, homophobic presentism. 
to say that it happened a lot. And then some, so there's some historians that say that it's a, it's a myth and a kind of a homophobic myth on top of that. And then there's some people who go the opposite extreme and say that it's worse than people imagined and whatever. And I was wondering to what extent, uh, I have to imagine the truth must be somewhere in, in the middle as mm-hmm. in like it wasn't, it wasn't rampant, but it, it also wasn't a myth like some people were mm-hmm. saying. And I was, I was wondering uh, what your findings were. Um, I actually have this as a goal to write an article about the history of this concept, the history of the term even. Um, If your listeners have any documents about buck breaking, especially the term being used um, in a historical document, I'd love um, to be contacted, either Twitter or an email. I had I didn't see the term uh, used in any of the records I looked at. Um, I agree that I have definitely seen things on the internet that do use it in a way that is homophobic or seems to make it seem like um, as some versions of buck breaking. I think rest on the concept of this being the ultimate degradation for an enslaved man, and I think that is presentist. And certainly in all the records that I looked at, the ultimate degradation for an enslaved man was the lack of um, freedom in terms of um, control over loved ones. Uh, And that's either in terms of choice of a spouse um, or staying with that spouse or that spouse being violated, right? Those are the things that enslaved men are talking about um, in their accounts, uh, either after freeing themselves um, or being freed and right. I mean, so these are anti-slavery activists, essentially formerly enslaved men writing about these things. Um, And so... It just didn't ring true for me that that would be the ultimate degradation for an enslaved man. That, to me, sounds very um, presentist. And it's it's not at all what I'm seeing in the record. And uh, so... To play to play devil's advocate on, yeah. on, on one thing, and this Please. is not me disagreeing with you, but just to bring up something that somebody might say, couldn't somebody argue that the reason that they talked about it so little after the enslavement was the opposite reason, that it was so degrading that they couldn't even... Um, bring it up because I can see someone saying it either way that that it wasn't the most degrading thing because that wasn't what they were talking about the most but then someone else saying oh maybe the re- whole reason they weren't talking about it was because it was so degrading it couldn't even even be um, recounted I mean the only way you could make that argument is if, if you've got some other data points to support the leap you're making in other words you could make that if you're going to say that because no one talked about it it was the worst thing it's just there's no evidence to support that it was the worst thing you've got to have some other data data points that are showing this to be um, emasculating or somehow that manhood rests on um, not having sexual contact with men. And that's just, that is something that emerges in the 20th century. Once homosexuality becomes pathologized um, and seen as like um, effeminate, psychologically weak, all those things. I mean, the older models of same-sex contact are not at all um, mobilizing those same tropes. That that being said, I do think that there are, this may well have happened. I just didn't see it in all the documents that I looked at. I do think that white... So you're saying it's like proving a negative, like, like, like prove that this didn't happen. You know, as far as yeah, saying, you can't. I mean, you just yeah, can't build a yeah. historical argument on that. You've got to have yeah. you can you can talk about gaps in the archive, um, but you're going to have to have a few other things there that lead us to that conclusion, yeah. not yeah, just the, gotcha. a total absence. The only the only instance I've ever heard of anything about breaking period with slave breakers. Yeah. But I've never I've never uh, seen that word even mm-hmm. in any documents. And slave breaking was I mean, even Frederick Douglass talked about being sent to a slave breakers plantation and it yeah, didn't have yeah. anything to do with sexual 
contact yeah, with yeah, him more than he yeah, got yes, beat. Yes, <laughs> slave, break, slave, slave breaking was a general term for just yeah. like, you know, uh, breaking down breaking down your resistance and spirit. But yeah, a lot of slave breaking stuff I saw was focused on uh, beating. Uh, uh, Thistlewood, I think, probably is the most explicit thing I've seen as far as uh, supporting yeah, yeah. the, the, the buck breaking stuff. A lot of stuff I saw was oblique, as in like, yes. it seemed to be hinting at it. But they never explicitly said, but by what they were describing, it seemed very possible that it was something that could uh, be seen as uh, what people think of as, as buck breaking. Uh, again, not using those words and not being explicit about it. Yeah, I mean, I do immediately think of um, the same scenes that are talked about with buck breaking, where it would be public, um, where, you know, it would be publicly humiliating. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, that is how many whippings right happened, and there is a certain uh, breaking sometimes that happens or humiliation that's public in front of family or kin or the community in terms of a brutal um, whipping. And sometimes that is with the men uh, naked or in extremely exposed or vulnerable positions. And so I do talk about that um, in the book, um, and that is using largely enslaved men talking about that as especially degrading that they were naked um, when they were whipped in front of family and kin. Um, and so, I mean, one thing I thought was really interesting about those accounts is that today we tend to focus on the whipping as a as the as the brutality, the physical punishment in those particular scenes. And yet, um, when you read the accounts from formerly enslaved men, they're talking about the whipping and that they were stripped naked in front of everyone while mm. they're whipped. That that is humiliating and, and degrading in itself, and that often um, the whippings are so brutal that they're unable to put clothing back on for a period of time, either you know for the day when they're recovering, or it depends on the injuries, right? And so there's a, I think there's a, a level of humiliation that was lost in the record there, and this for me sounds so much like buck breaking, and yet. There aren't even suggestions there about it resulting in penetrative sex. And and since the men are talking about this so fully, I just I just feel like, well, we've got all these other examples of what is humiliating and degrading. Um, and as far as the men are, you know, sharing their um, experiences, that this is, you know, the worst. Yeah. And, I, I oh, Sorry, go on. Well, I just want to say, and so I, I also don't... Um, I don't close my mind to what could be happening. And so it's, for me, it's just, uh, I just didn't see it in there um, to the degree, or at least in the same way that it's talked about when we talk about buck breaking. It doesn't mean I didn't see sexual violations occurring in, in the records. Um, and I think, as you said, I mean, there's, there's clearly a truth there. I mean, it is capturing an abuse that occurred, a sexual abuse. I think that where I take issue with it is what it ultimately meant. Um, and then I think also some of the buck breaking um, spins off into what it means today. Yeah, I think, I think right? the what is the legacy of it? Yeah, I, th I think I think the presentism, uh, I think, kind of colors the debate a lot because uh, from, from what I've seen, there was something there was something in the historical record, both explicit and implicit, that kind of shows that there was there was a decent amount of sexual violation of black men being being referred to, but because a lot of the people that bring it up now have it so conflated with presentist arguments, a lot of which are homophobic, then I think it kind of precludes people from talking about it altogether because it's almost this idea that to entertain it, you're entertaining the whole package of the of the uh, discussion, including the homophobic present presentism. So I think that too can kind of because I, I I think also when, when a lot of these historians say it's a myth, they're discussing the current presentist homophobic stuff, which which is true. The way it's being rephrased and reframed by people bringing it up today in such a cartoonish way, I think. 
think that version of it um, is a myth, but I also think, and if I'm right or wrong, tell me, the idea that it was um, non-existent or beyond the pale is an overcorrection. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, and I would not call it a myth. Um, and I guess I would only say overcorrection based on what we know right now from the records. So um, there's certainly more research to be done. I would say for, um, I should say for the book, I did not scour attics or collections of private papers or um, a lot of local historical societies, local archives. Most of this was readily available in uh, the WPA narratives, um, in um, available uh, autobiographical graphical accounts and other accounts and other sources that are readily available. So I think there's an awful lot still um, to be researched. Um, and I, I do recognize that I uh, think much of this focuses on uh, the Caribbean and the West Indies. And so I think, yeah. um, I don't know if um, Spanish language sources, that, which I did not have access to because of ignorance um, of Spanish, may also have um, evidence in it. So I, I don't say uh, it's a myth or that the, you know, the jury is ruled. It's an open question. I haven't seen it. Um, and all the other, as you said, analysis and packaging, I think, um, does sort of either draw people to it or scare people from it. Um, and so I think there's just a lot more work to be done here, like serious academic work to be done on the topic. Um, um, Kenny, do you have any um, other questions you want to ask? Because I'm working at a 45-minute uh, time limit, so I want to make oh, sure. Oh, no, man. I'm glad he came on, man. I've been looking yeah. forward to this um, this conversation for a long but, time. Why don't we stay, uh, shall we say two? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, cool. Yeah, if you're yeah. down for another 15, 15 minutes, that's, that's yeah, yeah. great. Oh, okay, okay, great. Yeah. Now, uh, at first we talked about um, white women uh, violating black men. Then we talked about uh, white men violating black men. I want to give you a chance because usually we have longer conversations. So <laughs> we get to go through a whole bunch of the book. But because we have this uh, time limit, I want to make sure that we get to something that's important to you. So I want to actually give you the floor to talk about um, what you think is probably the most important thing that came to light from your research or, or from the book? Well, um, I think every author thinks every part of their book is equally <laughs> important. So I, I will say that for me, uh, the one hold, thing hold on, that, hold on maybe maybe this will help oh I'm oh, sorry you got, I, I guess maybe, maybe what help is important in terms of being under discussed so all of it's important but as far as um, being under discussed before you got to it okay so I, but I'm again gonna say I think every author feels that I would actually say that every chapter in the book um, at the core has something that's under discussed so okay um, but again I'm biased I do I'm still sitting with um, the thing I think that bothers me the most about the book and is the um, perhaps the most surprising thing for me about the book, and that is just uh, that the archive is so broad and varied. Uh, in other words, it's not like I found um, a really deep archive, Georgia, and I was able to understand the dynamic in one particular plantation or how it played over generations or changed over time. Uh, that's a deep archive, right, with a lot of papers. I'm dealing with a lot of shards of evidence, but and but they're generally pretty explicit shards. In other words, I don't think they are, um, uh, say, just silences in the archive, right? These are shards of evidence. Uh, what is impressive in a negative way to me uh, is that I see this in artwork, um, in personal papers, in court records, in newspaper accounts, uh, in um, the Caribbean, um, in New England, in the 17th century, uh, in the South, in the 19th century. It's everywhere. And it's in all forms of communication, essentially, that are generated at the time. That, to me, is uh, profoundly disturbing because it talks to the ubiquitousness, I think, of the sexual violence against enslaved men. Um, something, something else 
that you talk about, and you, you briefly mentioned it earlier in this in this episode about uh, controlling, because you know a big thing that most people talk about when they do talk about this, even though it's had it kind of under discussed, but uh, when they do discuss it, they talk about I think primarily. Uh, what white women might have been doing to black men. Then what comes second is uh, what uh, white men have been doing to black men. In, that's what I find when I see people talk about this stuff. But then <laughs> the um, thing that get, I see gets discussed the least to me, anecdotally, is and you discuss this a lot in the book, which I think is good, is the control over how black men get to mate with other black people, either mm-hmm. as far as making you breed with this black woman or keeping you from marrying Mm-hmm. Um, this black slave on another plantation with mm-hmm. the idea of if you have sex with her, the kids you have are going to serve someone else's plantation. Mm-hmm. Whereas if, if you have sex with a, with a female slave on my plantation, that adds to my stock, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I thought that's pretty interesting if you could just talk about that real quick. Yeah, certainly. So there's two chapters there that actually work in tandem. Um, there's one chapter that focuses on uh, coerced sex, um, coerced uh, reproductive sex primarily. So what other scholars uh, an earlier generation called breeding, which I do not use the term. I don't think we can reclaim the term. Uh, mm-hmm. The chapter that goes with that and precedes it is about uh, the value that enslaved men placed on autonomy in intimate relations, right? Being able to choose lovers, taking risks um, to go visit someone on a nearby plantation and taking some pride in taking abuse or punishment for that choice, um, or simply just talking about the pain and humiliation of having a spouse taken from one, um, all the interferences that occur. So those are two chapters. The reason the chapter on um, what men valued is there in a chapter in a book on abuse, because it's not abuse largely it's being talked about, uh, is to set an historical baseline for what's being violated in that other chapter on coercion. In other words, it's because uh, we want to historicize how people thought of the abuse. Um, and that is uh, something that is largely in response to some criticism that the article actually had uh, in that some uh, scholars wondered if it wasn't presentist, right? If I'm not saying, if I'm not taking just sort of some transhistorical understanding of sexual abuse or sexual violation. Um, I know this is, uh, I don't agree with it, obviously, but I still felt like I wanted this book to um, address multiple audiences, including uh, skeptical historians or academics. Um, that might need a little more, um, I don't know, a tra- more traditional historical way of talking about it. I don't think I'm doing a good job of explaining this, but it's there to historicize the abuse, to show what people at the time thought was being abused or violated. And then the chapter on coerced sex, coerced reproduction. I mean, I think that may be what was written about more than any of the other topics in the book, I would say. People have known about this for a long time and talked about it, but I don't think we've done much of it um, in terms of men's experiences. It's largely been about enslaved women. Um, um, and of course, they um, have an entirely different experience that men have. They have to bear children um, in in their experiences, um, a much longer one, I would say, than the men. Um, but one thing I don't do in the book is try to evaluate who suffered more or from what. I I try very hard to avoid um, creating a hierarchy of abuses where yeah. Um, and I don't I don't think we can. I mean, as an historian, I don't have access to enough reflection or documents to say. 
an enslaved man who is ogled and um, treated like a, an object for his life does not suffer more than someone who is um, sexually assaulted once. I'm not in a position <laughs> to put those in any like in any order in terms of what's worse. And so I treat all these things on sort of one plane. And that's very much a problem nowadays is that a lot of people kind of take it as um, comparative um, oppression. I mm-hmm. hate to use the word oppression Olympics because I feel like the right has ruined that um, yeah. term. But but basically this idea of like um, comparative oppression and because I know there's different um, schools of disagreement with this topic and they come from different places where some mm-hmm. people as, as white, some white feminists don't like this topic because they feel like it's going to demonize white women and they're kind of uh, invested in this and I call it a new narrative of white women as co-victims of white oppressors yes, right. uh, during dur- during during slavery. I call it I call it a new I call it a new narrative because of when I watch um, plantation fiction like Gone with the Wind or read old things, mm. the idea that um, white women are like the right hands of the white men in the system was a lot more accepted than uh, this mm. new narrative of, you know, both being abused by, you know, the slaves and the white women being abused by white men. A quick clarification I want to say is um, when I made that ranking of things people discuss, mm. uh, you're absolutely right. Um, I should have been more clear. The slave the slave the forced the forced reproduction actually has been discussed a lot mm. I, I what i meant was it uh discussed in terms of the violation to the black man that's what i was saying has not been discussed a yes, lot right. because, because one common interpretation i've seen of it before your book is this idea of uh black male patriarchy or whatever this idea that the enslaved man the white man forcing him to do forced reproduction were kind of like these co-patriarchs like, yes. like the yeah, rufus, yeah 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 the rufus that was uh that the book is titled after a lot of people you know discussed him as someone who was like almost as if he and the white slave master are like high-fiving like oh my god this is a perk of of slavery I, you know right. uh right. yeah so uh, i want to see if you've kind of seen that kind of co-patriarch narrative um yeah ar- ar- around the forced reproduction definitely um i think that's definitely out there and uh obviously this book counters that uh, you mentioned Rufus in particular. I don't have any accounts from Rufus, um, so I just try to read into Rose's uh, description of what happened from her perspective to um, get us thinking about what his experience might have been. So for his particular case, I don't know the situation. But in general, I really do resist the idea of them as sort of co-conspirators, co-patriarchs. It just it makes no sense. Um and much of the logic that was used to help us understand um, enslaved women's vulnerability um, as enslaved people um, applies to the men. I mean, much of that logic still applies to them. And and it just hasn't been, um, I think, mobilized. And I do try to do that um, in the book. I think also if you look at the records enough, as you mentioned, uh, most of the work is focused on enslaved women. And so that chapter is making a contribution by looking at men. But I was also amazed at how much um, you could see in the records in terms of uh, what it might mean for men in the community and for the community as a whole. Um, in that, uh, you know, there's a number of instances where enslaved men are rented out to other plantations. We know that happened for labor, um, but we've got examples of enslaved men being rented out to other plantations um, for fertilization, for reproduction, um, that they're hired out in that way. So um, there's all sorts of implications for what that means for that individual um, being pulled out of the community um, that he's in, being sent to another plantation. Um, what is that experience like um, in terms of it possibly being isolating? 
or um, how the men might have in some ways viewed it in other ways ultimately. So there's just, I think there's a lot of layers to that chapter um, and there's a lot more that can be done with our understanding of um, what it meant for enslaved men and the community. That's also one thing I try to do is not get us thinking about how, although this is a book about enslaved men's experiences, these are also things that affected the broader community, affected their families, affected their spouses. These aren't dark secrets that only, only men knew about, in other words. I think a great point you made was about how you can't contain that type of violence. So it mm-hmm. ends up uh, seeping into like how they treat their own women and children. Yes. You know, I, I think we see this today with like, the, the, the school shootings and all these all these mass shootings where yep. white people are primarily the victims. And I think a lot of that comes from tolerating so much of this uh, violence, either abroad against black and brown people or domestically against black people, mm-hmm. that uh, it ends up starting to affect the, the white people, too, as far as that cheapness of life. Mm-hmm. That's that's it. We hit the time the time limit. That was that was great. I'm glad Ken got to an- ask all his questions. Definitely, I'm glad, he, I'm glad he came. I'm definitely uh, happy that he show, came to the show. Yeah, highly recommend the book. Uh, thanks, thanks again. Thank you thanks, again. I appreciate it. All right, and thanks guys, uh, Kenny and Mario, for joining us. And everybody, be good. All right, thanks. Take care.